We should be live. I'm uh, I'm gonna look at my phone right now and uh, see if we are. As a matter of fact, we are. Yes, we are. We are in fact live. So I uh, I will wait a minute or two and we can uh, chit chat just to uh, make sure that. Oh, you mean we as in we? Well, I mean, I could talk to myself, but it's not nearly as much fun when I just sit here and talk to myself. But then again, you know, when we're sitting at the dinner table and, um, yeah, it's like talking to myself anyways, because I didn't understand half the shit that you were saying half the time. Neither did I. I just made it up. Well, that and, um, so does Kevin not get on social media at all? Uh, he does. He does. Instagram kind of sometimes. Oh, okay. Because I friend requested him on Facebook um, before we even left Colorado and it's still pending. Yeah. I don't know that he ever gets on Facebook. I might tag him and stuff just that way. You know, it's nice to do, but he's not a, he's not a huge social media guy. I mean, something pissed him off about Facebook. I can't remember what it was, but he decided he didn't like that anymore. So he wasn't going to do it. Shocker. Something pissed Kevin off. So, uh, we do have people rolling in again, if you're just joining us and, and I want to preference this by if you're just joining us, but you're listening to the audio version, uh, because after obviously I get done with this, I do remove the audio and make it into a standalone podcast that you can listen to. Uh, we'll refer to as much stuff as possible, uh, that you can correlate into audio, but there will be some stuff that Shane goes over uh, as far as visual uh, things that he'll <laughs> visual things that he'll have uh, graphs and things like that. Um, so you may or may not uh, get the full context of it, but you get the general idea. So, and if you're watching this at a later date, because we are live, um, some of the things that we talk about will sound like it's in real time, and you're just watching the quote-unquote taped version of it. So I'm hoping that a lot of you brought your questions along. I just want to check something quick before we get delve too deeply into everything. Oh, I need to do the screen share thing too, huh? Well, that would help. Now, if we can only remember how we did it earlier. Don't be that guy. Fantastic. Don't be that guy. I think that's all I got to do, and then it's up to you at this point. Yeah, I think I've got it now. I can probably close all this other crap down. Can you see on your end? Can you see all the uh, the comments coming in on your end, or is that just on my end? That's just your end. Okay. That means you're in charge of asking the questions, and I'm in charge of making up answers. That is a fact. Did you, uh, were you able to find it on social media to share it? Uh, yeah, I just went to your page. Okay. And I, that's how I, when you said we're live, I'm like, oh, that must be just you. I didn't know I was there yet, but I could see the, the two of us on Facebook. So I just shared that. That you did. That's what I like to hear. So how was vacation? And for those of you that don't, before you answer that, for those of you that don't know, a couple of weeks ago after we finished up at Pikes, which was Sunday, the race was literally Sunday, yeah. and you and I left at, what, like 
three in the afternoon, two or three in the afternoon? Yeah, we left because uh, we left before they finished because Seth uh, realized he needed a ride to Denver. Yeah, and had no way to get there, and he his flight left at like at six o'clock or something like that. So we started counting backwards, going, "Oh man, if we don't get off this mountain soon, we're not going to be able to get him to the airport in time." So we decided to to bail on the um, on the festivities after they all finished running up up the mountain. Well, and you had to catch a flight Sunday night to go all the way across the country to Maine to spend the week with your family, with your, with your wife and your daughter for vacation. Correct. I I forgot about the struggle that that was, but yeah, basically like, so first thing is we get Seth. So Seth is the car chief for the car this year. And uh, so, so we get back to that because we, you know, we have some time, a little bit of time. So I said, look, let's go back to the house and then, the original deal was that he was just going to ride with Ryan, our team engineer for this year, because Ryan lives in Fort Collins, which means he has to pass Denver on the way from Colorado Springs. So he was going to ride with him. But the moment we got to the house, he's like, Oh, great. My flight's been delayed till midnight or my flight's been canceled. And I'm now on another flight at midnight. So I'm kind of, you know, half chuckling, but I'm like, okay, well that works because my flight is, I have a red eye that leaves at midnight out of Denver also. So we can just chill out here, like take showers and whatever, eat some dinner, and then we'll go to the airport, you know, later when there's no traffic and we'll go plenty early and all that stuff. So that's what, that was the plan. So then probably about, I don't know, seven o'clock, my, I get a message that says, oh, by the way, your flight's canceled. It's like, so I'm supposed to be flying, you know, red eye to Maine, to Bangor, Maine, where, where. Heidi and Bella are because they came in the day before. And so they're supposed to be picking me up. So I'm, now I'm struggling because I, I'm trying to rebook it to some other airport. And there's, there's, there's basically no way to get there. I mean, I get there, but not till Tuesday instead of Monday. So I cancel that flight. I book a flight on JetBlue that goes to the wrong airport in Maine, which is like a three hour drive from where Bangor is. And Heidi and Bella get up early in the morning and drive three hours to come pick me up. And then we drive three hours back. And then, yeah, so it was, it was a massive struggle. And then, you know, Seth's flight, which I think actually got out at midnight, but he was, he was only supposed to have 24 hours at home if he caught the flight at six o'clock and we got the one at midnight. So it's a red eye. So he gets home and I think he got about six hours at home and had to go to Canada. So yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't terribly awesome, which no air travel is now, which isn't a shock to anybody. So for those wondering, can you give everybody kind of a background as far as everyone knows Shane T from the drag racing world or or even Bonneville? Can you give the audience kind of a general overview on how you got into the tuning and working with a team that races on the mountain, on Pikes Peak? So this is a massive, long story. Usually when I tell it, so I'll try to do the Cliff Notes version of it. But the short story is my dad was an auto shop teacher when I was born. Um, he had a car repair shop also on the side. And for, was building a 32 Roadster in the garage. Um, from, you know, my youngest memories, there was, he was out there working on that, doing engine stuff, motorcycles, pick a subject. So uh, the short story is that I was interested in cars from a really young age or engines and cars, whatever. 
And then uh, when I turned about 14, you know, fast forward, we, my dad's in a different business at that time. He's doing a, uh, he's doing a hotline, a diagnostic hotline for, uh, for car repair shops, independent car repair shops to call in and get help with, with cars that have computers on them because no one understood how to, how to fix them when they first came out and they probably still don't now. Um, but anyway, so, uh, I, I start going to that shop, uh, when I'm about 14, cause I'm, I'm now starting to not be as interested in playing and riding bikes and doing all the things that kids do when they're 14. I want to go, uh, use the shop, which has a lathe and, you know, a welder and some other stuff in it. I want to go build a go-kart. Like, so I go buy a mini bike from the, from the swap meet and I build a go-kart and the short story is that um, the guys that worked with my dad saw what I was doing, became interested in it. I put a supercharger, basically a, a smog pump off of a, uh, off a Chevy pickup truck on my go-kart engine and try to make that work. I couldn't get it to work right. And one of the guys that worked for my dad um, convinced me that electronic fuel injection would be a better option than the carburetor I was trying to use, showed me how to build a small, electric controller to control the injector on the Briggs. And we then set off on a path of developing this little electric fuel injection system for this Briggs and Stratton with a supercharger on it. We ultimately ran the engine on nitromethane, so it was quite an experiment, but it was of a massive, a massive, because why wouldn't we? It was a massive learning experience and certainly changed the trajectory, I would say, of, of the path that I was I was on, or at least pointed it in a, in a particular direction. So from that point, I built, this is quite just right before junior dragsters come online. I finally get a job working at the gas station. I've got some money. I go buy some tubing and I build a, what I call a miniature dragster, but it's basically a junior dragster, but with a, with a motorcycle engine in it. And it took a couple different engine iterations, but, but in the end, we ended up with that electronic fuel in, or that electric fuel injection system on a CR 500 two stroke in that dragster and ran it at the drag strip. And then ultimately switched that to a GSXR 1100 with nitrous. And I got my NHRA license. I made exhibition runs at the 96 world finals uh, against a guy named Dave Tuttle. Uh, the thing ran eight eighties and a quarter mile at about 150. Uh, at about the same time I'm doing all this, I'm also got a couple of friends that work for some pro mod guys on the West coast, namely John Shelby, who had a 57 Chevy and still does called Wapadoo and, uh, Kirk Coons, who, when I graduated high school, I worked with my best friend on that team. Um, and we took the car around the country and went on tour with a super Chevy show. So I had a connection to drag racing. Um, obviously engine background with my dad being auto shop teacher, whatever. I eventually went to work at a regular car repair shop and then was able to be hired by my dad to work at his company. He sold it to snap on in 1996 and they paid him to run it until 1999. So September 99, he retired officially and they brought in corporate America and pretty much, you know, you went from a small dynamic company with a single owner. If you had an idea, went to him with it and he either told you it was good or bad. And then you were just done. I mean, you either did something about it or you didn't. 
Snap-on comes in and we're, you know, we have to have meetings to decide which, if we're going to replace a light bulb in the ceiling and, you know, how many pencils are we going to order? and Red tape so, and red tape. Yeah, it's just crazy, right? So um, pretty much, by, so I left in September of 2001. When I left, I think there was 26 people that worked there when, so when, he, when he took off in at the end of 99. And I was the 21st out of 26 to leave. So, you know, everybody found a way to go somewhere else because they didn't like the corporate environment. What's funny, they probably ended up in corporate. I mean, most of them end up, they work for Hyundai on their hotline or some other some other hotline company. And so they ended up in corporate America anyway, but uh, they all kind of went that direction. And I really didn't have any direction to go. I was going to go work on regular cars. And my dad stepped in and said, hey, look, you know, so let me back up to, to the whole fuel injection thing on the Briggs and Stratton with the nitro, you know, smog pump, and then putting the fuel injection system in my dragster, the CR 500 dirt bike engine, the two stroke used a lot more fuel than the Briggs and Stratton did. We used, I don't even know what injector that we found laying on the shelf for the Briggs and Stratton. And that was plenty of fuel volume, particularly for an engine that really never saw a load. It never saw, you know, it, we never, by the time we got it running right on nitro, with a supercharger and the EFI system, it was the go-kart had long since gone in the trash and I built a stand to run the engine on. But anyway, uh, the point is that we needed uh, an injector that would match the capacity of the engine we were running in the dragster. So it just so happened that we, the business park my dad's company was in was the same business park that MoTeC was in. And so we went over to MoTeC to buy an injector. And so that was my introduction to MoTeC. Um, and so fast forward when I quit working at Snap-on and I didn't know what I'm going to do. And I figure I'm just going to go back and work on cars. And my dad's like, look, don't, don't just go back and work on cars. And I, you can do that anytime, but if you go do that now, that'll be all you ever do. So go try and do something else. And, you know, he, he brought up Motec. Hey, you know, the, several times I have a couple of friends that work there and they always told me like, Hey, you know, you're really smart with this stuff. If you ever want to come and get a job, like, let us know. He's like, man, call him up and see. So I said, all right. So I go to Motec and I, and they actually, they're looking for somebody and uh, they're looking for somebody to do tuning, which is just awesome. That's what I want to do. So I have to kind of bullshit him a little bit and, you know, tell him I know more than I actually know. Isn't that and, what we all do? Yeah. And it doesn't work right off the bat. Like I start in September and it takes till November before they finally, I think, I think my boss, Jim Munn, probably got tired of me coming in there and stopping by all the time and thought, you know, if this guy's going to hang around here this much, we may as well put him to work. So, uh, so they hired me. Um, so that was, I, I came in there as a number two, a backup to the guy who had been their main tuner in the U S guy named George Clark. Uh, George Clark had literally worked himself almost to death. Uh, and, needed he had some health problems that he was trying to take care of and so they brought me on board as a backup to him so basically anything that he didn't want to go do or couldn't go do i, I would do but i was young so what well, was 2001 i guess i was like you know 27 he was probably 57 you do anything long enough and the older you get the more cynical you get and yep. you know he's kind of like you he's not got much filter so you know <laughs> when somebody calls and asks a question and he tells them what a stupid ass they are for you know either asking the question or not knowing the answer or doing it the way they're doing it 
And I was young enough to not be that way. And so it didn't take very long. And I immediately became the number one guy, you know, because everybody wants to deal with me because I'm not that. No, listen, so George had some guys that they liked that. They were, you know, that was, they were his guys. And that was fine. I wasn't trying to take them, but I'm just, the point of this is that I just went from being an, a secondary guy to a primary guy. Yeah. Motec is the kind of engine management system that is capable of running any kind of engine between a single cylinder uh, to up to 12 cylinders, uh, sequential or batch fire or four stroke or two stroke or turbo or supercharged or nitrous or normally aspirated or outboard motor in a boat or offshore motor or drag race motor or motorcycle engine or helicopter or airplane, pretty much anything you can ever get rotary, anything you can ever come up with. Motec is a system that can control that. And that's why we all say that you seem to be a rocket scientist to figure out Motec. Yeah. Well, it's definitely not, um, it's not meant as an entry level system. Let me put it that way. And, And it certainly isn't sold as the cheapest system on the market. And so that sets a specific level of clientele. But what I'm trying to say is that because it's used in so many different kinds of racing uh, genres, uh, working at Motec meant that I got exposure to all those different kinds of things. So, and I, I didn't have an option. I mean, I was Motec support. So if you hired me to come tune your rotary drag car, I couldn't say, well, I don't, I don't want to work on a rotary or, you know, I only want to do 670 inch big block twin turbo Fords, you know, or whatever thing that, was my specialty. I just had to figure out how to make whatever it was work. And by doing that, I pretty well realized that they all work the same way and, or at least similarly. And I got to, you know, support the grand American road racing series. Um, I supported Vance and Hines in NHRA pro stock bike. Uh, we did the IMSA American Le Mans series, uh, off-road truck series in the desert here in California. I mean, so I got exposure to lots of different kinds of stuff. And in 2006, you know, anytime you're working amongst a bunch of race teams and and you're coming in as a hired gun to do things for them, uh, they recognize the people that are they're good at what they do. And they try to, of course, they try to cherry pick you and, and hire you. Uh, and, and so, you know, that would happen from time to time, but nobody was actually really serious about it until 2006 came around and Christian Rado hired me as his crew chief for his sport compact team. So I knew I didn't want to cut myself off and only be pigeonholed in a sport compact, you know, crew chief role. So I made sure I could be a, a, uh, consultant and still work on all the stuff I'd been working on while I was at MoTeC. I left MoTeC under great terms. Uh, and that was it. I was in business for myself since 2006, doing basically the same things. And I started to migrate as the years went on. Like I, I enjoy obviously drag racing because I have a background in it and um, got exposed to land speed racing while I was at MoTeC and enjoy that. Um, the Pikes Peak thing was something that always piqued my interest and I never did it while I was actually at Motec. And I, I had from time to time uh, clients who would call me and say, hey, uh, we're going to Pikes Peak, you know, next week. Can you show up and like tune the car and we can go to the top of the mountain and like win? 
And I knew that that was not the way I wanted to debut at Pikes Peak. So, you know, I passed on all of those opportunities, if you want. Um, and in, so four years ago, I guess it would have been 2018. See, Pikes Peak takes place in June. You have some test weekends that start at the end of May or the beginning of June. But really, if you're going to have a car, unless it's already built, uh, if you're going to have a car that's going to go up there and actually be competitive and have a chance at doing something good, I mean, you can't be starting the project in January or you know December no. or something like that. But uh, a good customer of mine, Kelly Moss Road and Race, uh, who we've done many projects together, uh, called me and said, hey, this is about January. Hey, we got a uh, we got a guy that wants to go run Pikes Peak. And I'm like, okay, you mean next year? No, 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 this year. <laughs> like, I already don't like this, right? But I said, look, it's not going to happen. It's January. You don't have enough time to do what you're doing. Uh, not correctly. So what about next year? Well, next year is not an option. Well, how come? Well, because the, di the guy's been diagnosed with terminal cancer and he's not going to be around next year. So are you in or are you not? So I'm like, fuck, of course, yeah. I'm yeah, in. you don't have much of a choice at that point. Right. So, well, that and like, it's the guy's, you know, dying wish and he wants to go do it. And like, yeah, I'm not going to stand in his way because I don't think it's, you know, we can be competitive, whatever. So that that's that's the story of Dominus Don. And so, you know, Don had gotten a hold of Kelly Moss. Um, we took a GT3 cup car. Didn't have time to do anything to the engine, hung a pair of turbos on it and effectively normalized it. If you, I mean, we made the least possible amount of boost we could make at sea level just so that when we went to the mountain, we could make a couple of pounds of boost and keep it making its normal power all the way to the top of the mountain. But normally those engines will make about 600 horsepower normally aspirated, but you know, this is a titanium rod, lightweight, NA high compression, you know, race car motor. So we don't, we can't go lay 30 pounds of boost to it without flinging shit out on the ground. So um, that, that was the plan with that car. And so we went up there uh, in 2018. I had never been. <laughs> it's a lot of altitude. It's one thing to talk about. No, oh, God. One thing to talk about how engine management systems work. Uh, and it's another thing to actually go to the mountain and make them work that way. Or even, or even breathe and walk for that matter. Breathing and walking, depending on who you are. So, um, yeah, you, we went with Don and uh, unfortunately crashed out that first year before we even got to the race week. So, obviously, we we're all terribly bummed, figuring, well, you know, car's junk and he's obviously not going to be around next year. So, that was that. But miraculously, and obviously, we're having this discussion now. Don has managed through whatever um, kind of treatments he's doing or whatever his method is to push cancer away. He still got it. Still going to treatment. Still goes to even going to treatment while we're up there running yep. the car. Yeah. Um, but yeah, here we are four years later when he was not supposed to live one year and we're, we're trying again. Now I guess we're going to try for five next year. So... I'm going to throw up a question um, because I think it really leads into the bigger picture of everything that we're going to talk about tonight. And Joe Charles, 
um, asked this question a little while ago. By the way, uh, Mark and Allie said uh, hello, and so did Tom. Oh, answer. Uh, yeah. Um, so Joe. Oh, Tom probably. Yeah, it is. Um, are you able to change the tune in the Motec based off the altitude as the car runs uh, up the mountain? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so any engine management system that's worth actually using on an engine will have the ability to measure the uh, pressure and the temperature in the intake manifold of the engine and allow you to make an automatic adjustment for those variables. Uh, you know, drag racers typically look at the weather station and effectively engine management systems and EFI systems are meant to have a live weather station going on in the intake manifold of the engine by measuring the temperature and the pressure. They don't, they don't get the humidity, but the humidity is a tiny percentage of the total, of the total um, equation for air density. So basically, if you know what the air density of the, of the engine is by measuring what's in the intake manifold and you have the equation set up correctly or the trims or the calculation, which are all based on something called the ideal gas law. Um, if you have the engine right at any particular altitude, it will be right at every other altitude. Um, now have some errors in the, in in that, but now when you say part, that, that's how it works. when you say though, if a, for example you say okay, well if we've got it right at sea level, it'll be right at fourteen thousand feet. Now just so people understand, because you and I you explained a lot of this to me while we were on the mountain, it's not going to make this. It might run this. It might run right. It's certainly not going to make the same power though. Yeah, so. Because of like, like I take, for example, when you and I were up there on Tuesday and the DA, I think was like, I mean, we were at 14,000 feet, but the DA is like 16,000 feet. And so what we may have made at sea level is going to be drastically different. It's still going to run, but it's going to be drastically different. Yeah, so let's put some numbers to it. When we're at sea level, we'll call that 100% density, because, of course, it is. Uh, and when we're at the top of Pike's Peak, everything else being the same, we have 60% of the air density that we have at sea level. So what that means is if we have an engine that makes 1,000 horsepower, it makes the math work nice, mm -hmm. uh, at sea level. And we take the same engine to the top of Pikes Peak where we have 60% of the air density that we have at sea level. If we have an engine management system that can maintain the same air fuel ratio at the top of Pikes Peak that we used at sea level to make a thousand horsepower, then in theory, that engine will make 600 horsepower at the top of Pikes Peak. You can't do anything about the fact that you've lost 40% of the air density. Uh, notwithstanding having a turbocharger. I mean, we're talking about a normally aspirated engine, okay? Um, but the struggle is that if you have a system that either incorrectly measures the two variables that determine the air density, the pressure or the temperature, or you have a system that's inexpensive and it's cool because everybody uses it, but it doesn't know how to do any of those compensations, 
then you're going to run the risk of running at the wrong air fuel ratio when you go to the top of Pike's Peak. And that means you get a double whammy. Not only do you lose on the air density side of the equation, but you also lose because the system doesn't automatically correct for that change in air density. In other words, the mixture is going to be wrong. And in this case, because you've taken the air away, it'll be rich by some amount. And this is what happens with a mechanical injected system also uh, without some way of measuring or referencing barometric pressure or to some degree a carburetor, uh, which is what makes uh, electronic fuel injection great. And it's the whole point of having electronic fuel injection is so that you can have, you know, automatic uh, adjustments that happen. So you don't have to account for them with the laptop. But I will say, correct me if I'm wrong, was that white and orange or, yeah, white and orange Camaro? Wasn't, was that carbureted? Absolutely. That thing sounded amazing on the mountain. Absolutely. We and were both they, looking at guys, each other like, damn. Those guys have run the mountain for a long time, and they're also over there with screwdrivers swapping jets when we're, you know, running different sections of the mountains, and they're, and they're working on it. And listen, if I... If I take an electronic fuel injection and I take all the smart things away from it that do the cal calculations and allow you to do these kinds of compensations, and I just make it basically an electric hillborn, I'll still have to do the same thing with the laptop. When I go to 9,000 feet, I'll have to sub subtract a bunch of fuel away. And when I go to 12,000 feet, I'll have to subtract more fuel away. And that's a real problem if you're starting at nine and you're going to 14 you know, 5,000 foot elevation change, you don't get to hook the laptop to it right on the starting line before you do the burnout and adjust it based on the weather you measure. The thing has to do it on its own, which is, again, what every normal engine management system does. And so, and also what every single streetcar that has, you know, computer controlled engine electronic fuel injection, that's what, it, and, and they've obviously done it to meet emissions, right? If they'd run at the wrong air fuel ratio at the top of Pike's Peak, you burn your catalytic converter up and then the car comes back to the dealer, you know, on the hook and it needs the cat replaced and it didn't pass emissions. So that's, that's the whole point of having EFI. So let's take, for example, um, the middle section, which is what, Dave, 12,000 feet or so. Yeah. When Don gets back from that and you then, so just so people understand how the process works, especially during the week, we would go up very early to two 30 in the morning and get everything set up and then start testing five forty five six 6 AM ish. Whenever the sun was or light for that matter, um, whenever you were able to. Now, when we load the car back up, come back down the hill and go to Dan's where we were servicing the car. When you're looking at the data, are you looking at, um, like beginning to end? Is there a, like a timetable during his run? And that's how you can tell where the increase in altitude is, or is there an actual like altimeter or something built into the software to tell you no, where he's a, at? We have a pressure sensor which effectively is an altimeter i guess here hang on a second are, are you able to show yep my screen so um let's see this is probably the best way I, I assume everyone's looking at the same thing i'm looking at the data screen should be 
Okay, so I'm going to put the uh, datum cursor on the left and another cursor on the right. If we look at these two bottom channels, the pink line and the white line, uh, these are ambient air pressure uh, at two different sections on the mountain. So the pink line where the green cursor is at 73.4 kPa, which happens to be 73.4% of sea level, um, is, is at the starting line at 9,000 feet. And the yellow cursor, uh, which in this case reads 68.1, uh, is at the top of Devil's Playground. So the change is happening as the car is going up the mountain and the ECU is measuring this pressure and it, it, it knows what the local barometric pressure is from this sensor. And from the sense, we can also calculate the altitude. It's not an altimeter, but it works the same way an altimeter works, which is just basically to measure barometric pressure. So if you go from your start, which you said 74 is 74 kPa? Yeah, 74 sounds about right. So then memory. what is it at the end of that run as far as the kPa oh, at the end goes? Of the, of the first section? Yeah. Let me turn off the second second run so let's start here where it's idling and, and when he says K idling. when he says kpa we're going to refer to that as percentage of uh percentage of da so like say 74 percent okay. of to be honest yeah it's it's not a perfect representation because we're not taking air temperature into account this is strictly barometric pressure but the barometric pressure that's considered standard at sea level is 101.325 but that makes the math really hard for a human being to do yeah. in their head so it's easier to just call that 100 which is one bar one barometric pressure measurement we're going to break that into percentage and call one bar or one one, one atmosphere 100 and in this case we start at 73.4 percent of sea level or if we want to relate it back to horsepower our thousand horsepower engine starts on the starting line at 734 house horsepower capable and is 683 horsepower capable when we get to the end of the first third. So we've essentially, what did you say at the end was 60, 63, So essentially you've, you've lost five KPA in that section, correct? Yeah, so 74 down to 68, whatever that is, 6, 5, 6, yeah. something like that, depending on whether you're going to a, how far you're going to go on the decimals. Hang on, so I'm going to try and open one more data yeah. file here real quick. Because if I use race day, I'm going to get the whole thing. Full run up to summit. summit. Oh, you know what? I could probably use the end of this. This is going to screw me all up now. Okay, expand this out. Oh, well, look at this. We get it backwards. So this is in reverse, of course, because this is the end of the actual run up the mountain on the left side. Okay. But if you look at only the pink line on the bottom. He is that coming the, back down? Yes. He starts the engine up the top of the mountain, right? So this is what it is at the summit. Yes. 61.8. So our 1,000 horsepower engine makes 618 horsepower at the summit. And our thousand horsepower engine makes seven hundred thirty-seven at the starting line. So there's your there's your difference. You got a twelve percent swing in in air density. 
between the, the starting line and the finish line. By the way, he, uh, he, his screen name is Hugh, ja- Hugh Jazz. Yeah, Hugh Jazz. Surprise! He remembered how to close his Pornhub tab. Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure. That could be one of many people. Yeah, I know. I do have an interesting turbo question for you uh, from another viewer. Whenever you're ready, too. Uh, okay. Um, it's not necessarily specific to uh, the LMP car, but uh, it, this is something that you explained to me. Um, Frank Reyes wants to know if you can elaborate on the compound turbocharged Nissan four-cylinder. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know that I'm going to do that. There's That's a whole nother podcast worth of okay. shit to bring up. So, I mean, if he has a specific question, great. He, but... he wanted to know how... Um, and how you measure back pressure on a compound. Is it on the last turbo or all of them? Well, it depends on what kind of back pressure you're looking for. For example, uh, the engine is subject to the pressure difference between the intake and the exhaust manifold. In other words, the cylinder. So the cylinder knows the pressure in the intake and it knows the pressure in the exhaust. So the important numbers to know for tuning or for appropriately fueling the engine are the pressure right before the intake valve and the pressure right after the exhaust valve. So if I was mapping the engine using those inputs, that's where I would measure the back pressure because that's what's important to the engine. Obviously, there's going to be a pressure drop across the first turbo uh, as it normally would go to atmosphere, but it now has to go through a second turbine housing. So there's going to be a pressure there across the first turbocharger. And then if you measure between the inlet of the second turbo and atmosphere, you'll get the pressure differential across that turbocharger. But anyway, that's uh, neither here nor there and has really nothing to do with what we're doing now other than it's got a turbocharger on it. So I'm happy to talk about the compound some other day, but it's not going to be today. So... Let me ask, I know that you, again, we talked about so many different things when I was on the mountain. And one of the questions that I've always wondered, and you might as well leave your screen up for it because we talked about it earlier. Well, not even that screen, um, is going to, is going to be, how are you one picking the proper turbo, especially for let's face it a v8 lmp3 that's norm that's an na was normally an na vehicle that then got twins on it but that correlates to kind of everything in regards to how to pick a turbo and how you're looking at making sure you're staying within efficiency ranges and reading the turbo maps and things like that okay well there's a number of ways that it can be done. And I'm fortunate enough now to have data to look back on, but at some point we had to pick the right turbocharger and the way we would do it without having uh, already run the engine would be to estimate the engine's efficiency, uh, calculate its airflow based on its displacement and the boost pressure that we're gonna run and then decide based on that number, what would be the appropriate compressor to use for that kind of an engine. I'll go through the steps that I use to to verify or do a sanity check, if you want, on the compressor 
that we're currently using by using the data from actually running the car up the mountain. So it's a relatively straightforward process because we have injectors from Injector Dynamics, which have been flow tested and we know the exact volume that they flow for the amount of time that they're turned on. So we have a very precise fuel volume measurement device in the injector, again, because the injector is characterized and the ECU knows exactly how much fuel it's putting in the engine at any given time. So on this graph, I have the top line in purple is engine RPM. Uh, and this is just graphed against time left to right on the screen. So hey, Shane, is, let yeah. me pause you for just a second. While we get into this, um, Todd Gibson asked, can you just let every, and again, you can do this, I can't. Can you just let everybody know what the engine drivetrain package in that LMP3 is? Absolutely, yes. So this is an LMP3 that we bought. Uh, the first two years that we attempted to go up the mountain, we used Porsche, Porsches, crashed them both. And we needed a way to come up with a car to run up the mountain. And we found somebody that had an LMP3, basically prototype. They had built two of the cars. Uh, it's a Riley tub, and it was finished by another company, and they attempted to mass produce these cars, but they never got to that point. So consequently, it was a, a car that we could get our hands on quickly and for a reasonable amount of money. So we got the car last year. Now, an LMP3, Le Mans prototype, uh, has a series mandated, I think it's five liter, uh, Nissan V8, VK50 or VK53, I guess a 50, uh, which is a normally aspirated engine. And it typically would run a restrictor plate on the air inlet so they could control the horsepower uh, of the engine. The series could control the horsepower of the engine to control the, the speed of the car and whatever else. So it is a carbon fiber tub, carbon fiber body, um, stressed member with the engine and the gearbox they're bolted to the back of the tub and the suspension is connected to those pieces uh front suspension is connected to the tub uh, it looks like any other le mans style prototype that you might see where there's a single driver's cockpit a wing at the back um and you know kind of has that swoopy le mans looking shape so similar to Daytona prototype when they used to have Grand Am, uh, similar to the cars you see running around the road course in IMSA. In fact, LMP3 is an IMSA category. So uh, we got the car two years ago. And of course, to run it up Pikes Peak, we had to do a couple of changes to the car. Um, the, not the least of which, of course, is the turbochargers. We know if we ran the engine up there normally aspirated, it would be an absolute dog uh, at the top of the mountain. So we're going to use turbochargers to sort of help that process along. Uh, on top of that, uh, this car is meant to run around a road course, which is relatively flat. Uh, doesn't have things like rocks and mud and dirt and, and water uh, and mud and changes in elevation in a corner of five or six feet that cause the front to scrape the ground and the rear to scrape the ground. Uh, and corners that are so tight that you have to go to the outside of the turn and turn it full lock just to be able to make the corner. 
So consequently, we had to pick the car up off the ground. These cars are uh, intended to have a flat underbelly or an underbelly that has a uh, diffuser under it so that it has additional downforce without the penalty of drag, of dragging a wing. Um, but that only works well when you have the ride height of the car a specific distance from the ground. And because we have to raise the ride height of the car, we consequently lose some of the downforce that's built into the car from the factory. On top of that, we had to cut the steering stops down and change the steering linkage around so that we could get it to turn tight enough and cut holes in the bodywork so that the tires wouldn't rub holes in the carbon fiber. So the other part of the issue with Pikes Peak compared to a road course is that first of all, it's not really got too many corners that are the same. It's a 12.4 mile distance with 5,000 feet of elevation change, give or take a few feet. Uh, and there's 156 turns. Your typical maximum speed, at least in our car during qualifying or testing is about 135 to 138 miles per hour. Your slowest corner is about 19 miles per hour. Your average speed is about probably, well, this year, hard to say, but <laughs> in, in normally when you have clear track and you're going all out, your average speed over the course of that 12 miles is uh, about 70 miles per hour. Uh, and unfortunately, the car is designed to run around a course where its average speed is much higher. And that means, well, first of all, it's, it's meant to make way less horsepower than we're making. So the cooling system and the airflow to the cooling system is, is adequate for half the horsepower at twice the speed. So that's a problem. Um, and the downforce that the car has is also uh, designed for a higher speed. Uh, so we, we already are running the car slower than it's designed to be run. And then we're running it in half the air density of air that it's you know normally ever gonna see. Uh, so downforce is, is a major problem. Mechanical grip is a problem because you have to change the right height of the car. So I guess I'm just trying to say it's 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 not simple. It's, it, there's lots of problems involved with just going up there to run a car of any kind, let alone one that's not meant to do what we're doing with it. So going back to this screen where we're looking at your graphs, though, how does that explain, explain to everybody how all of this kind of works in correlation to help you get the car from 9,000 feet to 14,000 feet. Well, with this kind of a car, you know, I assume most of the people that are watching this are coming from a drag racing background. So in drag racing, you're doing um, power management mostly. Um, you're trying to match the amount of grip you have with the tire uh, with the amount of power you can generate. And this is a little bit different situation. It still is about the grip and it still is about the tire. We can only go as fast as we have grip for. Uh, unfortunately, there's no one prepping this track. It is literally a road, which is a two lane road up a mountain that is used by the public every day of the year, other than one when they run the race. Um, and anything can happen at a moment's notice on that road. Uh, 
you have the upper section is is the is high enough in altitude that overnight the road and 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 the dirt that the road is built into on the mountain actually freeze uh the water the moisture and the dirt freezes which makes the ground solid uh and then as the day progresses and the ground warms up uh the ice thaws and the road sags and so you have heave which is up and down movement in the road that changes on an hourly basis in the upper section of the, of the mountain um so what what we're trying to do is put enough sensors and data on the car and look at our times and look at things like lateral g uh and longitudinal g to determine what setup changes to make to the car Unfortunately, because there are so many different turns, so many different sections, you have a track which is effectively alive. It's hard to make an adjustment that's not going to cost you something in some other section, right? So it's it's got to be a real kind of a real general, a real general setup change. Uh, and the same thing with with the engine tuning. What we're really doing at this point is verifying that we're getting the boost we want, uh, we're getting the mixture we want. Our temperatures aren't out of control, uh, you know, and basically go let Don drive the car. Uh, and, you know, we make small adjustments to try and achieve those goals each time uh, we get to go make a test run. Uh, but but that's that's pretty much it. We're we're not in development with this car, thankfully, this year hmm. because we were able to run up the mountain with it last year and pretty much everything worked. Now, what, you're a numbers guy. You're You're looking at... You're acquiring data and looking at the data when we come back. Yep. Does driver ability, style, anything like that come into play? Or in the only way that I'm assuming that you could tell that is by the sensors regarding brake and throttle. Yeah, is that brake, correct? Brake throttles. Um vehicle speed uh, and then you lay that over a, a, a map of the course so you have some idea where it is uh, and and you watch what the driver's doing with his you know with his throttle foot because his throttle foot tells you how uh, confident he is in the setup if if he's going after the throttle and then backs out of it it's because something scared him so then it's a combination of looking at the steering angle looking at the brake pressure lateral G uh, longitudinal G um, and try to determine if, if there's something in the car that you can fix or, you know, he just had an uh-oh moment because he was going into a corner too fast or went over a bumper, there was a rock or a skunk or a Or deer, he couldn't or, see a know, damn knows, thing. Or he couldn't see because the sun was in size. <laughs> um, so I'm, we veered way off from what you asked me earlier. Yeah. So I'll just run through this real quick on the turbos and then we can move on. But uh, the short story is that because we have an injector that we know delivers a specific amount of fuel, um, we can calculate the volume of fuel directly off that injector, which is this red line here, fuel flow volume in cc's per minute. Uh, and because we know what fuel we're using and we know the density of the fuel, we can then calculate the mass flow of fuel going into the engine from the volume flow. Very simple calculation. Um, we have an air fuel ratio sensor in the exhaust that tells us the ratio of air mass to fuel mass that the engine is running at. And this red line down here, um, where I'm trying to move, I hope you can see the arrow. Yep. 
um, indicates the ratio of air mass to fuel mass. So it's simply a matter of taking the fuel mass, uh, multiplying by the air mass to fuel mass ratio, in this case, 7.22. So we could take our uh, 972 pounds per hour times 7.22 will give us, uh, let's see, it would give us mass flow of air in pounds per hour. So that would be this number, right? 7,000 pounds per hour. And then we can turn that into a unit that's more useful, like pounds per minute, right? By dividing by 60. Mm -hmm. And then we can go to uh, a graph that, that shows. Oh, it's our NASA graph. It's our NASA graph, one you really like, that shows um, the mass flow of the engine across the bottom axis from left to right and the pressure that the compressor is generating, which is completely then relatable to a compressor map. I was just gonna say that if, if you've ever looked at a compressor map and you look at Shane's, <laughs> I call it a NASA map, uh, because it pretty much looks like a photo from NASA, it, the, the graph, you could almost lay the two over each other, they look, like, the, you know, the NASA graph looks like a, a graph, a, a compressor graph. And that's, so that's exactly what I've done. I've plotted out the mass airflow, which is the axis across the bottom down here in pounds per minute, against the pressure ratio, which is the vertical axis up the left side of the graph. And I've plotted the points where the engine runs in the lower section, which is the kind of the rainbow colored section. And then in the upper section, which is the white section. So you'll notice there's a difference um, in mass flow between the lower section of the mountain and the upper section of the mountain. Even though we're achieving effectively the same pressure ratio, pressure ratio is kind of a fancy way to say boost. Um, but there's an interesting thing that happens here when we go up the mountain, uh, which is that uh, the, the pressure that we're starting with isn't the same at the bottom of the mountain as it is at the top of the mountain. And therefore, we actually don't achieve the same boost pressure, uh, even though we might achieve the same pressure ratio. So if you look here on the, uh, on the graph I have on the screen now where the cursor is, we have a compressor pressure ratio of 2.7. And, and we have the same pressure ratio at the top of the mountain at 2.7. And, and those that ratio comes from the pressure coming out of the turbo versus the pressure going into the turbo. Right, so at the bottom of the, of the mountain where we have more barometric pressure to work with, we're taking 65.6 and multiplying it into 177 the resultant pressure ratio is 2.71. When we're at the top of the mountain where we only have 58.8 um, kPa to work with, we're turning that into 158 kPa in the manifold, which is less, right? But it's the same ratio of inlet to outlet pressure. And we're doing that on purpose. If you look back at the compressor map, um, I've plotted out again, the, the lower section with this graph, 
uh, with this with this line plot here on the right, and then the the upper section on the left. Now I have to qualify this a little bit. I'm using a Garrett compressor map. And the reason I'm using a Garrett compressor map is not only because Garrett sponsors Damon's uh, podcast, but also because Garrett is the only company who's willing to publish a compressor map that someone could get their hands on. The turbochargers we're using on the car happen to be from a company called Zona Rotor. My friend Robert Young runs that company and he builds his own compressor maps on his uh, turbo test stand. He doesn't offer them to the public. In fact, he doesn't even offer them to me. However, I supply him with this data and he then goes and modifies the compressor wheel to give us a turbocharger that matches exactly where we're trying to run the engine. So if we called the center of the compressor map, it's sweet spot, which is where we would like to be with the engine. We can see from the the graph that I grabbed off of Garrett's website and plotted the engine on top of it, we're a little bit to the right of center. The turbos we actually have on the car have a little bit more airflow than this particular one I grabbed off of Garrett's website, which is an off the shelf turbo. So these lines don't run right up the middle of the sweet spot of the Garrett compressor map, but they absolutely run right up the middle of the sweet spot on the compressors that we're actually running on the car. Okay, so anyway, let uh, me... so we could see a little bit of a difference, sorry, between uh, the upper and the lower section. And the reason we see a difference is because uh, I'm trying to hold the turbo at the same pressure ratio and keep it in its sweet spot, which means for any given amount of boost, we get the least possible amount of air temperature generated by delivering that boost pressure. That's important on anything other than a drag car because we have to get rid of that heat uh, in any kind of an endurance application, be it Bonneville, offshore boat. Well, boats, boats a better example, or not as good an example because you have a large cooling system to use uh, compared to a car. But a uh, road race car, Pikes Peak car, you can generally make way more power with a turbo than you can actually cool off. And so thermal management becomes a problem. And that's where we're at in this case. We're trying to run the turbo in the most efficient spot to generate the least amount of heat for the amount of boost we're making so that we don't overheat things and we don't have to run a cooler the size of a trailer uh, to be able to keep the, the air temp in check. So there, that's my little bit on the compressor map. Uh, Would, and that's what these graphs are all about. So does this change based uh, would it change if you're running a different style fuel? No. Because of the heat? No. no. The, the, the airflow of the... Oh, you're talking about a heat, a thermal management thing? Yes. Yeah. So methanol would reduce the temperature on the exhaust side of the engine and potentially the engine coolant temperature, but it would have zero effect on the air coming out of the turbocharger. The turbo doesn't know anything about the fuel. All it knows is how much air the engine's trying to suck through it or how much air it's trying to deliver to the engine. Uh, so regardless of what kind of fuel we're using, we would still end up with the same result coming out of the turbocharger. The only thing that would change how the turbocharger perceives the engine is if we change the amount of air the engine can use. Uh, we either make the engine a larger displacement 
or we rev the engine to a higher RPM where we can move more air, or we make it smaller. And that would move these two lines around on this compressor map, which is why it's so important to have the turbo matched to the engine. And when you do that, you have magical, you know, horsepower numbers. So, uh, Frank Reyes had uh, two questions. Uh, first one, really easy. What fuel uh, is used in the LMP3? Good question. We are running ethanol. We are running ethanol because uh, we were sponsored by one ethanol. I wanted to run methanol. The race is 12 and a half miles long. Uh, we certainly have enough fuel tank capacity to... Uh, to put enough fuel in the car to make that race. Obviously we would have to use more than what we're using with ethanol. Um, we, we, it's not a problem to have enough fuel system to run methanol. But again, because we're sponsored basically by the, an ethanol company, it made more sense to run ethanol. So our choice was E85 or E98. I said, let's run E98, no need to run E85. Second question Frank had was the cooling system, um, like NASCARs that is the cooling system like NASCARs that have a high pressure system. Uh, we don't run particularly extremely high coolant system pressure. We monitor the coolant system pressure and it runs about 30 pounds when it's warmed up all the way. Uh, it's not a high pressure system like, like they use in cup. No. And, uh, here, I'm going to toss this one on the screen. Uh, Cal Naughton Jr., what kind of manifold pressure was run and how did the IC set up? Intercooler. Okay. Intercooler set up cope at said boost levels. That's a good question. So uh, let me go back to turbo pressure. So we're achieving about 180 kPa at the low pressure, which is about 12 pounds of boost over atmospheric. But this is what's kind of misleading. You know, when we say boost, typically we're referencing a, a gauge sensor that's referenced to atmospheric pressure at sea level. In other words, if, if I had a gauge that could read the absolute pressure, uh, I would read, I happen to be sitting right at sea level, um, I would read 14.7 pounds. Uh, if I put an engine on the dyno and generated 10 pounds of pressure above the atmospheric pressure, uh, I would have... 10 pounds of boost on my boost gauge. I would have 24.7 absolute pressure, right? When we go to Pike's Peak, the barometric pressure drops, right? It's no longer sea level. In fact, at the top of the mountain, we discussed it's 60, right? Yeah. Instead of 100. So it makes it very difficult to breathe for humans and for engines, right? So let's just see 0.6 times 14.7. We have 8.82 pounds to start with on the inlet of the turbocharger at the top of the mountain. When I get to 10 pounds of boost, is that relative boost relative to the 8.82 pounds? Because if that's the case, then I'm making 10 pounds of boost. But if I compare it to sea level, it's really only 18 PSI over 14.7. Right. So that's what the turbocharger thinks. The turbocharger thinks it's making 18 pounds of boost when on your boost gauge, it reads four pounds because you're at the top of Pike's Peak. So as a, as data acquisition goes, then you have to look at those maps 
you can't rely on like a gauge, if you will, right. uh, because the gauge is going to say one thing when you're actually making a different because of the altitude. Yeah, look, the, the thing of it is that you're obviously you're using the data. Oh, apparently I just killed that too. That's nice. Uh, so, you know, you're using the data system and most of the pressure reference points are in absolute pressure, which when you're using an absolute pressure reference that it doesn't, it's not, it's not as um, easy to get crossed up on what you actually have, right? So the absolute pressure tells, tells the story. If, if I have 15 pounds of boost pressure on a gauge and I'm sitting at sea level, I have 30 pounds of absolute pressure. Now, no matter where I start, if I go to the top of Pike's Peak, if I still have 30 pounds of absolute pressure, it's the same as it was at sea level. It's absolute, right? Now, it's going to read a different number on a boost gauge, right? Because boost gauge is referenced at sea level. But, yeah, that's kind of the weird part of it. So, how does this outside of the altitude and dealing with the barometric pressure and and the elements, if you will. Hang on, somebody how, asked me about the temperature, so I'm just going to cut you off. because No, like I wasn't even going to ask. I wasn't even going to ask about temperature, actually. I know, but somebody, they was asking how good the intercooler worked. So the air oh, yeah. going into the engine, this is the thing. This is part of the unique part of Pike's Peak. It, we were only able to run the car hard for the first, like, one and a half sections of the three sections on race day because fog was there and he flat couldn't see. So the temperature that we achieved going into the inlet plenum uh, was 112 degrees. That's the highest our air temp going into the engine ever got with a 60 odd degree ambient air temperature. And you can see this pink line drops as he goes up the mountain because he's simply backing off the throttle. Can't go fast because he can't see. So there's our coolant temps right at 200. Our oil temp maxed out about 235, which is pretty normal. Transmission got up to about 180, 190. Um, Cooling-wise, we think we're in good shape, but you know we still, even after this year, have not made a full hard run to the summit. So we don't know 100%. Uh, the, the unique thing about Pikes Peak is that you never get a chance to run the entire race distance until race day. And even then, you get one shot. And even then, your one shot could have, uh, well, shit, you know, look, some, it's, uh, an animal could run out in front and you have to slow way down. You don't get to do it over. Too bad. That's just your luck this year. Come back next year and try again. We actually got to do it over this year because the guy in front of us who actually had a really terrible crash, we had no idea. They told us he, like, went off a little bit and they had to clean up some debris and pick the car up. He actually went end over end, and it was really bad. Thankfully, he was okay. Um, but we got red flags, so... Halfway up the mountain on our first run, which was the better of our two runs, uh, we had to stop, go back to the start, turn around and go again. Now, you're racing on tires that uh, we pre-warm them with a, with a tire warmer before we take the car off the jacks and put it on the ground so that the tires are up to temperature and give us better grip. Uh, the problem is when you get red flagged and you go back down the starting line, you don't get to put your tire warmers back on. Nope. So the second run, we're on cold tires. Uh, it's raining. It's foggy, and uh, yeah, so we didn't quite get as good a run. But, you know, again, our, our major goal this year, after all of the other years and having crashes and whatever else, was just literally to summit. We finished last year, but it was a shortened race. We've never been to the summit. 
So that was a massive goal. And, you know, he got foggy conditions and had to slow down. And so consequently his, his time up the mountain wasn't representative of what we could actually do, but that's just how it works at Pikes Peak, you know, and that's just your luck. The guy behind you could have the fog could clear and he gets a clear run and same class as you and blows you out of the water. And that's just how it works. Uh, Cal had asked another question. Was any cylinder fuel balancing done? And if so, what was the biggest percentage spread? Uh, we didn't do any cylinder balancing on this. We didn't really have time and we don't have the equipment in place to do that uh, on this particular setup, but it's uncommon to have a big swing in mixture uh, on these kinds of engines because they're, they're fairly well balanced. We have a fuel system and injectors that deliver very precise amounts of fuel. Um, so I, I would not, imagine we would find more than a five five or six percent swing between cylinder to cylinder if we were to check it which we didn't do todd gibson asked it was it was drive by wire absolutely uh the engine originally is variable cam timing i don't know that it has variable lift uh and and part of using those engines in lmp3 the series or whoever removed the variable valve timing control and then mounted uh, the mount for the engine right where it normally goes. So it can't be put back in, which is kind of a bummer because that would really help us at lower RPM uh, to help generate some more power by being able to move the intake cam and advance it and, and you know generate some more cylinder pressure, low speed, but we can't. Uh, drive-by-wire throttle, yes, absolutely, we have that. Don't really use it for anything other than idle control and you know obviously whatever the driver does. Uh, it's pretty straightforward in this application. There was a question earlier that I wanted to bring back up. Uh, it was actually, again, another one from Todd. Um, can you see these questions when I put them up? I, on the now screen? I can, yeah. Okay. It just now popped up. Go ahead. Yeah, all the all the control units are Motec, yes. I think there might be might be a V-Box in there. But with, So the original LMP3 stuff is uh, Cosworth, I think. Either that or it was Magnetti Morelli. So when we bought the car, we sent Don out to, you know, drive the car and get used to it while we developed the turbo engine. And once the turbo engine was done, we shit canned all the electronics out of the car, gutted it and replaced it all with Motec. Other than what we, you know, like I'm sure it's got Bosch ABS control unit in it. Um, but other than that, it's pretty much all Motec now. And Kevin wired that entire thing? Did, yes? He did indeed, yes. Okay. What's it? I always screw up what Kevin's business is. It's KSV looms. KSV looms. Okay. Yeah. And if you guys want to talk about artwork and from a content creator that takes photos all the time, I look at Kevin's work and I'm just, I, 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 I literally said to him while we were at the house in Colorado Springs, I said, you need to find clear loom that you can use when you're wiring these cars because you're hiding so much beautiful stuff. That's why the stuff costs a lot. I mean, number one, there's the materials that you're, it's all aircraft stuff, right? So, um, but, but the methods and the techniques used by these guys that do what Kevin does to build wiring looms is kind of like, it takes a long time and there's just no way to do it automatically. Uh, it's, it's down to, you know, being, doing things by hand and you know if you if you saw a trunk of his loom it's called concentrically wound 
So what that means is that it's like a rope, right? You start with something in the center and you wind the wires around that center point and you fill in so there's no gap and there's no bulge. And without the shrink on the wire, the wire is almost a perfect circle. I mean, to the point where they're adding extra pieces of wire that aren't needed only to fill in the gaps so that it stays as one solid bundle. It's absolutely beautiful. Yeah, it's a lot of effort goes into it. That's and that's why it's expensive. Uh, this is what we need to work on now, Cal Naughton Jr. Your question about smoothing the pulses as a result of TC cuts in an effort to help the drivetrain live. Uh, right now, we're not having a problem destroying the drivetrain, but as you can imagine, uh, each time we cut a cylinder, we lose about twelve and a half percent of the power of the engine. So when you cut it and turn it back on and cut it and turn it back on or cut another one, it's relatively granular or rough or coarse threaded adjustment, right? Um, we want to try to use a bit of a finer grain adjustment. And so next year I will change the code in the ECU so that it can use a little bit of ignition timing retard before it needs to cut. That way, uh, we have a good smoother introduction of power reduction when we're spinning the tire instead of the harsh cut that we get. Because the, the problem is that the drivetrain in this car is relatively springy. Um, so you get lots of wind up in the half shafts and, you know, the main shaft and the transmission or whatever. When it's spinning the tire and the engine cuts, you create a whole bunch of lash or, you know, ring in, in between the tire and the engine that's hard to get rid of and it makes it not smooth. So that is something we are going to work on because at this point, I think the next goal that we should realistically have or be able to achieve would be to run to the top of the mountain in less than 10 minutes. Um, that's kind of a unique and small club of people that have cars and have been fast enough to go up in less than 10 minutes. And so that's probably the next realistic achievable goal that we could actually get our hands on. So, you know, going back next year, we have a whole list of things that we're looking to update, upgrade, traction control, and it's power reduction. Um, let's say granularity is, is one of those things that we are going to work on. What was our final time? Uh, 12 minutes and some odd. Uh, you know, it was way off, but... You know, he couldn't you see. Couldn't and, and, and again, like, we have to focus on the goals. And, it, you know, there's a lot of icing on the cake that happens. Like, we, yes. we, we didn't expect to qualify in the top 10, uh, which we did. And and that was icing we'll, on we'll the cake. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Well, that was icing on the cake that we didn't, you know, we because of our past history crashing, and although we finished last year, we're so gun-shy, you know, and we don't want to push on him at all. We want to try and contain him and and make him you know make good decisions and, and listen no one running up that hill with exception of maybe one is running at 10 tenths in other words no one is going as fast as they can go they're all running 70 percent or maybe 80 percent because the problem with that place is if you make a mistake obviously there's a massive penalty penalty to pay and it's too too difficult uh, to not make a mistake if you're pushing really hard. So, it, it, look, it's more like a, a war of attrition, you know? And, and, like, if you're there in the end, and you and you saw you saw what happens oh, with yeah. the, you know, the conditions. 
you literally, literally minute by minute, you know, you could have a clear run all the way up the mountain, run it as hard as you want. And two minutes later, the fog is rolled in and the guy behind you can't see and he gets a shit run of it. And we couldn't even see bad. the first, we couldn't even see the first corner from the yeah. starting line. Yeah, it was, it was, it was really bad. I mean, and so, you know, at that point, look, just get to the top. Yep. That's the best we can do in this circumstance. And we have to come back next year to try again. And, you know, the weather could do the same thing again next year. Do you have a wheel slip percentage or amount you shoot for when setting up trash control? Yeah. The easy way is you go spin the tires real quick with the car, accelerate off from a stop, whatever, let it blow the tires off. Um, watch the longitudinal G-force. The wheel slip number that generates the peak longitudinal G-force is your aim wheel slip number when there's no lateral G. Because a tire can only provide grip uh, up to a certain amount in any given direction, that means uh, you can't provide maximum acceleration or deceleration if you're also using the tire to turn. Uh, you have to give up some to get grip in the other direction. Uh, it's called the friction circle. So when you have lateral G, you have to command less rear wheel speed or wheel slip in a longitudinal direction. Uh, because otherwise, you'll lose the lateral grip and spin out. So, but, you know, so generally, yes, you go run whatever car it is. Spin the tire up to wherever the longitudinal G peaks. That's the wheel slip number you need to hold from there till eternity if it's, if it's possible to do so. Same exact thing we do at Bonneville. So I got to ask, you've you accomplished or have accomplished a lot in motorsports in general, whether it be drag racing or Bonneville or now Pikes. What is it about Pikes? And I know for me, because this was my first year going, um, and... Again, I could not, ex even when I got home and people asked me about it, I'm like, I can't put it into words. You have to go. Yeah. What, and, and a lot of people, after seeing everything that we had been posting throughout the week, are like, I need to go to that. It's a bucket list thing. I got to be there. What for you is something that, like, you know, with drag racing, you have championships. With Bonneville, you have world records. With Pikes, it's the car and the clock. So what makes you want to keep coming back year after year and keep doing this ridiculous schedule that, listen, Shane doesn't sleep ever. Damon, he likes his eight hours of sleep. Shane, like two hours of sleep and he's good. I wish um, I could sleep like you, where you're just like, okay, I'm going to go to sleep right now. And you're immediately sleeping. Daylight, yeah. doesn't matter what's going on, you're sleeping. And then Shane just wants to play Name That 80s Tune and and gets crushed. That's about the latest I could keep you up. Yeah, like it pretty much. Been, it might have been dark that day when you went to bed. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was because we were the only two still awake at that point. So I don't know the short answer to your question is I don't – look, just like you said, you can't explain it. I mean – there's a thousand things that make you want to go back to Pikes Peak. Uh, not the least of which is the uh, venue that you're at, which without race cars around it would take your breath away and blow your mind. Uh, let alone the fact that you're then getting to run a race car up and down this mountain 
And look, you know, if you go run Pikes Peak, it's not like thousands go do it every year. You know, they, like this year was the hundredth running of the event. They had a hundred and some odd cars, or maybe they only had eight cars. Seventy, I think we had a total of seventy-one because Ken had to pull out. He would have been seventy-two. So you're a, within a unique group of people that have ever even tried it right off the bat. It is so difficult to understand. I mean. I had no idea. I knew there was a mountain. I knew we had to run from 9,000 feet to 14,000 feet. Um, I had no idea all the rest of the little trip ups. It it's very much reminds me of Bonneville. First of all, it happens once a year. Um, unlike every other kind of racing, you know, if I was going to try to create an analogy to drag racing, it would be like if drag racing only happened once a year at Indy and there actually wasn't any racing. It was only qualifying. And you get to practice uh, two weeks before the race, but you never get to run all the way down the track. You can run to the 330 or you can run from the 330 to the 8th or you can run from the eighth to the finish line, but you never get to run all the way down the track until your one qualifying run during race week. This is the only run that matters. Get in the car, run a quarter mile. Track could be good, track could be bad, could rain, tough luck. It rains, do your best, come back next year. Well, and to add to that, I mean, you don't even... For people who have never been to Pikes or may not follow it that closely, you don't qualify the whole thing either. You only qualify the bottom section, and you don't know. Well, I shouldn't say you don't know, but it was broken up into three different groups, I think. So one day, Tuesday, you may be at one section. We qualified Wednesday morning, or Wednesday morning, I think it was, on the bottom. And then Thursday, we were in the middle section because... Uh, Tuesday, they apparently felt like trying to kill Shane and I and send us straight up to the top on, on Monday or Tuesday morning. So you don't even, you, you don't get the entire track until Sunday when you run and you run it once. That's it. One and done. That's part of the thing about, you know, the cooling system on the car and whatever else. Like we, we still, okay. We summited. We still have not run the entire course length in anger. So I don't 100% know that the cooling system's good all the way to the top because we've never freaking been there. I mean, we went there this year, but we backed off because of fog. So that doesn't really count, right? And, and when you get to test the upper section, it's literally only the uppers. You're starting like a third of the way from the top. Yeah. And you run that section. And then you start, you know, a third of the way, start at the bottom and go a third of the way up. And then you start, you know, a third of the way up and go to two thirds. You never run them all together, ever. Ever except for your one run on race day, which, by the way, is more than likely at a different time than all of your testing, because it's a public road and we have to be off the mountain so they can open the road back up by 9 a.m. Yep. So we run from sunup until about 830 in the morning. Right now, race day, they start racing at 7 a.m., but they run two classes before they run the qualified classes. So probably you're maybe the first guy is going to run up there at about 8:30 a.m. 
he might have road conditions similar to what he tested in. But if you're running at 11 a.m., remember what I said about the upper section and the sun melting the frost, you know, the, yep. the permafrost and the road heave changing and, and, and the tires, you know, are obviously going to act different when the road's warm versus when it's cold and, and just and, 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 and. It's, it's insane. Well, and we had snow Saturday night. We unloaded the car Saturday afternoon in the bottom section. And, and took, our shirt, took our jackets off because it, it was 70 or whatever it was. Beautiful. Awesome. We get We get back to the house, and by, what, 6.30, I started getting messages from people who were looking at the Pikes Peak cams and showing me that it was snowing at the top of the mountain on Saturday. Todd wants to know how many people are part of the team. Well, uh, this is a smaller team. Um, there's obviously more people there on race day than there are on any other day. But the core part of the team, you're talking about six or seven people along with Don. So, you know, a handful of people, probably similar to the number of people you might have on a drag race team, depending on what kind of car you're running. I was just trying to think of, of how many there yeah, you're right. It was like seven or something like that. Not including me. Listen, not including. I was there just to observe and have my mind blown by the amazingness that was that was happening, and then get to go back to the house every night and look at photos and go, "Damn!" And the funny thing is, I'll tell you, and I didn't tell you this when we were there. As a photographer, you learn things just like just like data. It's essentially data acquisition for photographers. I look at these photos and I look at what settings I have to use and I learn from there. If I go back, what equipment do I need to bring next time to make it easier and create content That's better. in a, in a, in a more efficient manner. So like I'm looking at these settings going, I already know if I go back, I need these two lenses and I know what I need to do to allow more light in because we're going up in pitch dark every morning when we're going up there at, you know, 3, 3.30 in the morning. I'm like, okay, I need a tripod and I need these two lenses and I will be much better next time. It's the same thing. I mean, obviously not to the extent that you're doing it, but it's a learning experience. Yeah, it's, again, like they... They either do a terrible job of, of promoting what that week is like, uh, you know, or I just flat ass didn't do any kind of research before I went up there. But I mean, race week, especially because it just keeps going, like, because it's all week. Um, you get up, you get up at a, you get up at about two mm -hmm. in the morning and you haul ass up to where we have the car uh, staged at Dan Skoken's house. He's one of the, Pikes Peak officials lives right at the bottom of the hill, like quarter mile away from the entrance to Pikes Peak. So, you know, get up at two, go get the cars already loaded and all the stuff, but you start generators, get the tire warmers on the tires, put them in the truck, get the truck running, get in the two trucks. Cause you're only allowed so many vehicles up there. Um, and then, you know, everybody goes up and we wait in line and at three 30 or something, they open the gate and let us start going three 30 AM. We start going up the mountain in the dark pitch darkness. We either go to the top, middle, or lower section, depending on where we're running. Uh, unload the car, unload all the shit to work on the car, 
uh, get the car running, warm it up, whatever. And when it's finally light enough for you to be comfortable, you can start running, you know, up, the, up your section. So you go get in line if there's a line and you run up your section. And then, you know, obviously it's a one, it's a road. You can't be running both direct and have people coming down while someone's trying to race up. So you run up your section until no one, they have a two minute warning, basically. The last person goes, they wait two minutes. If no one else gets in line, they say, okay, red, no one can go. Bring all the guys back down that went and then we'll start again. And they just repeat that process, you know, until about 8.30, depending on where you are on the mountain. Because if you're at the top, you still have to load and go down and be off by 9. So they might start stop you at 8 o'clock. Um, if you're at the starting line, you obviously can go a little bit longer because you're lower. You don't have to go as far. Um, I think when we were in the middle section, they were still running until about 8.30. Yeah, we might have got a little bit of freedom there. But the bottom line is you got to be pretty much done by 9 o'clock. So then you load the car up and go work on the car. And thank God this year we had nothing really other than just looking stuff over. We didn't have anything major to fix or change because we weren't uh, developing the car. Except for the set down day. Every other single year that we've been up there uh, or fixing stuff that that was screwed up. So, um, you know, you just repeat this over, you, you know, do the first day, the second day, the third day. And you also have potentially a test day if you want. Plus you have, uh, fan fest where you take the car down and display it and that gets over at nine o'clock at night and then you go, you finally get some sleep at the end of the week uh when fan fest happens if you don't test if you do test you don't get any sleep because you have to still go up the mountain again and then get your car ready and take the fan fest the second you get down to the mountain and when you're done with that the next day when everyone else is just loading up to go put their stuff on the starting line you're working on your shit Right. And then you're towing it up there last minute to park it on the starting line. Um, you know, and then you get up race morning. You have to try and beat all the fans that are coming up. So they let their race teams on at like, I don't remember, one thirty or something like that. It, that and, and I want to touch on that for a second because that was a trip to me. So we were in what, like an Acura SUV or something. Yeah, I think it was a QX60 or something. <laughs> or an Infinity. Yeah. So we go up at one thirty, or well... We get through. They start allowing teams to go through. The line was already down all the way down the mountain. Yes. So we go through and get uh, as close to our pit spot as we can, pull off on the side of the road, and decide that, we, you know, try to get some sleep because that's the only sleep you're going to get that day. So I go all the way in the back of the SUV. All our stuff is back there. I'm curled up and listen, I'm not a small guy. I'm six one three fifty. I'm and honestly, I should have sent Ryan back there because he's half of everybody else's size. No, but yeah, we should have forced him to the back. But so all of a sudden, well then it's time to go to your pit in the morning. These guys open the back and I practically fall out and I'm awake, but I've got fans and, and people like honking and waving as I'm almost falling out of the back of the SUV. <laughs> but it was. Here we go. I have a little sampling that I took from that night in the van. Oh I boy! Woke up at one point. Man, Ryan's loud. That ain't me. It sounds like animals. I don't know if that's picking up at all. Oh yeah, it is. So that was, you know, it was dark then. It. Right? Yeah, people are driving by. But then look, hang on, but I but then I woke up later and I got another one. 
There's three people just snoring away and all like in pieces like they're playing. Oh, that was terrible. But the funny thing is, yeah, see, and there you Oh, and then it started raining. Yeah. But the funny thing is, so if you go back to the one where we're in the dark, fans are already walking up the mountain at 3, 3.30 in the morning, whatever it is. And it was, if you've ever watched a line of ants uh, on the the pavement, it was, I get out and I'm watching, and there's just lines and lines and lines and lines of people walking up, and I'm like... This is absolutely insane. Yeah, it was. I mean, literally, we pulled over at whatever, probably when we were up there, maybe it was close to 2. And I don't even know what time those videos were, probably 3.30 and, I don't know, it was light, so maybe 5.30. The line never stopped. I mean, even when we got out of the truck, there was still cars and people walking up there. We just happened to be walking with them up to the starting line where the car was. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, so you can... You can go, if you go up race day, so first of all, Frank, there's FanFest, which happens in downtown Colorado Springs. Which is absolutely amazing. It's free. They block off a bunch of the streets in downtown. All the restaurants and bars and stuff are open. There's street vendors. They do like, uh, you know, the backflips and shit on the motorcycles in a certain area. All the race cars are out on display, or at least all the race cars that want to be out on display, but it's pretty much all of them. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the teams are there. And, um, it's free to it's free to go to as a fan, right? And and uh, like they were saying, hey, listen, you need to get in your spot and like be there. Don't waste time because we're gonna have like you know thirty five thousand people here today. And I'm like thirty five hundred people? No, no, no. And they weren't shitting you. I mean, literally, the streets are absolutely packed with people. Uh, and and it's that's so that's totally cool. And then if you want to actually go to the race, uh, race day, you know, you, you go wait in line like what we did. They let the race teams up at 1.30. I think they let the general public up at either 2.30 or 3.30. And then you drive up and you find your place to park on the side of the road. You get out and you walk up to the starting line. Uh, you can walk beyond that if you want to walk on the side of the road and get a spot and watch from a certain spot. But if you want to see all the cars, you're going to want to be in the starting line or the pit area which is kind of this parking lot that turns into a pit area and the, and the road we were pitted on the actual road. Um, and, and, you know, and then it, obviously everybody's there waiting for their chance to run. And, you know, once, once the cars go up, this is the other weird thing I didn't know. Cars all go up. Of course you can't run any back down. So when your car goes, you're pretty much done until it comes back at the end of the day when the last car has run. Yep. And so like, Unfortunately for me, I have a logging rate way high in the ECU to log. I can log, I don't know, I'm probably logging four or 500 channels. And I'm logging a bunch of them at 1,000 hertz and 500 hertz and whatever else. So it uses a lot of data memory. I've never been to the top of the Pikes Peak before. Last year, we didn't go all the way to the top. Wasn't a problem. But this year, guess what? We went to the top. And then it took, it looks like about an hour for them to drive back down. And I have like the last three minutes of the second run up the hill. In other words, the one that actually went to the summit. And then I have an hour and 30 minutes of the car idling and driving back down the hill. So thank God we have two data loggers in the car. The Motec dash has a data logging system in it also. And it, it's, I'm able to tell what's going on for the most part from that. Not quite as many channels as the ECU, but at least get the idea, look at the cooling system, temperatures and pressures and all that good stuff. Um, I, I didn't want to, uh, Cal, because Cal has been asking some great tech questions. 
So I wanted to toss this one up because this was the last uh, tech question that he had asked. Right. So it's it's boost by throttle and by speed. However, I'm also doing a pretty good uh, strategy just to control the turbo and try and hold in that good in, in the sweet spot. So the other thing I'm trying not to do is make the power way different for the driver from the bottom of the hill to the top of the hill. So it does lose some power as it goes uphill. And I probably could turn the boost up at the top of the mountain. But again, having never been there, I don't overspeed the turbo, blah, 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 blah. Uh, so it's boost by speed, modified by throttle. you know. And then I decide what I want for the pressure ratio and also make sure that it stays in a happy spot. So, and for those of you listening to the podcast, the question was what kind of boost control strategies were run, if any, to limit or control uh, TQ in slow speed, corner exits, boost by throttle, gear, RPM? That's what Shane was addressing there. TQ being torque. Yes. Um, let's see. Oh, here we go. I'll I let you answer that earlier. One. Gibson asks, I may have missed it earlier, but weather permitting, what time do you expect the car to be capable of up the mountain? Well, that's a little bit of a loaded question. What time is the car capable of, or what time is the car capable of with Don driving it? Um, we're, we probably have more race car uh, than we have driver. He's a gentleman driver. I mean, this is not what he's done his whole life. Uh, you know, when he found out he had cancer, he had a lifelong goal and dream to run Pikes Peak one day because he saw it on TV as a kid. You know, saw Ari Vatanen or whoever running up Pikes Peak, almost sliding off the side when he was five years old. And so that became his lifelong ambition to one day go to Pikes Peak. And when he was diagnosed with cancer, sold his company, you know, talked to his wife and said, look, this is something I always wanted to do. And it was my last shot. So again, he's not a professional driver. He is for sure improving. We're now four years into the process. Uh, we've now given him, a, given him a car that's the same for two years in a row. Uh, he is for sure way better than he was the first year, no question about it, as anybody would be with more experience. But he's not a pro. If we put the best driver in the paddock, uh, in the car, I'm sure that car could probably, and it would also take good weather day, you know, so good, best conditions and best driver. Where you can actually see. My guess is that that car could probably achieve close to an eight-minute time. Um, with with Don in the car, I wouldn't even want him to try to go there because it's just not worth, It's you know, it's like asking him to do something superhuman, which he, he just can't do. And if he tries and fails, the, the risk is not worth the reward. Uh, there are but, very few drivers that, I at least from what I saw at that race, there are very few drivers that are like, you put them in the car and it doesn't matter. Like, you don't have to worry about it. I mean, like Robin, you put Robin in a car and he's just going to go. Yeah, like if you let Robin drive that car, obviously it's going to rip off a fantastic number. It's not going to rip off a, as good a number as Robin would in Robin's car because mm -hmm. Robin's car is probably a better car than that car for the for the mountain. But uh, make a mistake if Robin got in, in, in Don's car, it, it would put up a nice number that there's no chance Don 
will be able to do, and nor should we expect him to be able to no. do that. Uh, so for me, I mean, it's small victories. It's a war of attrition. Just being there in the end is 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 a huge accomplishment. I mean, man, look, you have the the Hoonigan team spending ungodly amounts of money and time with some of the smartest people in in the industry. I mean, they have guys running the computer system on that car that are guys that I call when I have a question or when I want to know how to do something. Um, Sander Marquez and Oscar Zalea, and of course, Kevin building the wiring harness for that car. Um, and that team, BBI Autosport, has had success on Pikes Peak numerous times, and they've set records for the classes that they've run. But they tried to do something, like I said, they started in December. They tried to build a car to go run Pikes Peak that was from scratch. It's amazing they even made it. But they ended up having a problem that even with all their resources, they couldn't, they didn't even make the race. No. You know, so it just, it's, you've got to have a, it's, it's not a young man's sport. <laughs> it takes a little bit of wisdom. Patience. Uh, and, patience and, and patience. Patience. And realizing what your actual capabilities are and, you know, trying not to trip yourself up. It's just like any race car. Look, drag race cars is the same way. It's one thing to go out there and swing for a record. It's another thing to go out there and make consistent runs with changing conditions and not screw yourself up, um, you know, by making too big of a change or an adjustment that that doesn't. What do you need? What, what do you need in order to win? Not. How can I impress everybody by being the fastest guy this round? And listen, I love that too. I love trying to do that, but that is the hard way uh, if you want to win. And and to win at Pikes Peak, you have to finish first, <laughs> right? And um, what I will say uh, to build off of that, Shane, is uh, this was unlike. And and we'll get to Frank's question in just a second. But unlike anything else that I've ever gone to, if you want to talk about teams that don't give two shits who gets up the mountain quickest just as long as everybody gets up there safely and if you need something they're over there i remember when we got we got sent back down the mountain got red flagged or whatever it was so we could come down the mountain and start over yeah i was standing in the pits i think you were on the starting line yeah. i was standing in the pits two or three teams came over to us are you okay do you need anything just the amount of sportsmanship and gentlemanness that goes into racing on the mountain is something that I've never seen to that extent before. And dude, that's honestly part of what makes it awesome. So quickly, Frank Reyes. Yeah. I use uh map versus EMAP and I custom wrote that into the software cause it didn't do that to begin with. Uh, so, I mean, check this out. Robin shoots guys. Robin shoot, uh, was a guy that qualified. Number one was in our class a phenomenal driver okay with a with a really good car and uh he won the event overall he's king of the mountain and he has been in the past and and there is no way we could touch him no matter what we did to the car uh unless we could put uh someone that was crazy like him to drive the car we would never be able to touch him and that's fine uh we certainly respect everybody else, and, and, and you, I think you'd find that throughout the pit area. Anybody who's willing to go up there and put themselves through this kind of punishment to go race up a mountain, 
you have to give some amount of credit or respect to, and I think there's a common respect level through the entire period for that. You are not racing against the guy next to you, even if you're in the same class, because again, the conditions can change. It's not, it's not a, a, a man versus man contest like drag racing is. Um, it's, it's really, you know, man and his team against nature, you know, and the elements of that mountain. Um, and you're obviously racing for time and in the same class, but, uh, um, it, I got thrown off by Teddy's question. So <laughs> the, the, the thing I'm trying to say is that even Robin shoots guys came to me and said with excited looks on their face while they were walking back towards their pit area. Hey, you know, where did you guys end up? Yeah. I'm like, ah, oh, you know, I think he ran up there in like 12 minutes and 32 seconds. They're like, Oh, right on. He made the summit. Awesome. And I'm like, where did you end up? And then I'm like, Oh yeah, stupid. You were number one. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Congratulations. You know, and then they walked up. I mean, these are the guys, they don't need to stop and ask us anything. No, but I mean, it's the same, same thing. Like when they were having a hard time running their car, but they're whatever, they were parked next to us when we were testing. And, you know, me, Kevin walked over and said, Hey, you guys need anything? We're right here. I mean, if there's something we can do to help. And, and, and listen, you know, it, there was one point where Rod Millen's truck at the top, he went to take off and fucking, I took a video. Everybody in the place got their cameras out because Rod Millen's going to take off. And, you know, on the 100th anniversary of Pikes Peak, uh, going to take his tundra up the top section of the mountain, and he, you know, revs the thing up, lets clutch out, and goes, duh, yeah. duh, look, 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 and it does that fucking for a mile. I mean, he could have run out and pushed it out of the way faster. I mean, me and Kevin, because Kevin knew those guys, you know, yeah. from working with Reese, said, I said, like, I don't remember which day it was, but it was like, hey, if you guys need something, we'll come over and take a look or help or do whatever, fuck, order sensors, because obviously we wanted to see the thing run. I mean, it's 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 got a tremendous history, uh, as does Pike's Peak, and so it'd be a real bummer if that's how it was going to run. They didn't need our help. Clearly, they fixed it and it hauled ass, and it was good. But but that's just sort of the that's just sort of the level of uh, um, even uh, let's say sportsmanship that exists up there. Even on Sunday, I mean, you, me, Kevin. Ryan, we all went over to Cole's team because they're they ran like a 10, 10 20, 10 yeah, 30 or like something like that. Fifth or something yeah. overall. We yeah, all went over there good. and drank beers with them. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah, yeah. it's so it it's the camaraderie that it, and honestly, it, listen, that's what's that there is an element of that too, but it's that it's also like Bonneville. Like there's guys that I go to Bonneville with that work on the speed deacon team that I don't see any other time of the year. You know, and, we, and, and and the good news is, you know, we're all together for one week and just about the time you're getting tired of these motherfuckers, it's time to leave and you're done for another year. So then, then you see them again and you're so excited and happy to see them and talk about stuff and hang out and talk about the old times and whatever else. And then it's gone again. And it's the same thing at Pikes Peak, you know, with those guys that, that we kind of have managed to get, get ourselves around at Pikes Peak. It's the same. It's like it's a little miniature uh, like it's a, a little miniature uh, PRI show. Yeah, Zebulon. Ze, some Teddy Josie asked what Zebulon's involvement during race week was. Zebulon is a company run by Ryan Neff. Uh, Ryan Neff is a race car engineer. He was brought on board uh, for this year's Pikes Peak at the last minute because our engineer and our car chief were unable to make the event this year. Uh, and we found that out about two weeks before the race, maybe three weeks before the race. So we had to bring on uh, some other people and we 
and when I say we, I mean Don, called a bunch of his contacts in the industry and he found two really great guys, two really great guys. Uh, one of them was Ryan Neff, who again came in and did the engineering on the car. So what's an engineer do? An engineer looks at the data that we're getting out of the car. I'm looking at the engine controls and you know power management, things like that. He's looking at suspension setups. He's looking at speed brakes, how he can help the driver, um, what we can make changes to on the car as far as the suspension, uh, damper settings, whatever, to try to improve the efficiency of the car and make the lap times go down. Um, so Ryan's there to do that. Um, and car chief Seth uh, Lizier, I think, or Lizier. Bradley Cooper. Bradley Cooper was brought on board as a car chief. And he works on those kind of cars, has lots of experience doing that, works on other kinds of cars as a car chief. Car chief is the guy that works on the car and is in charge of all the nuts and bolts and how everything goes together. The engineer tells the car chief what he wants changed and the, and the car chief changes it. Or, you know, maybe the engineer helps in the case of a small team like ours. And maybe sometimes the engine management guy and or the fucking guy with the camera has to do some of this stuff too. Everybody has a little bit of cross pollination on a small team like this, but but yeah, that's how that's how it works. So so Ryan was brought on board this year. He did a fantastic job. Um, both him and Seth did. We got along great with both Ryan and Seth. Super solid guys. Extremely high level, high achievers uh, in their industry, and it shows. And they came in with zero preconceived notion. They came in with uh, open minds, and they came in most importantly without egos. And it certainly could have gone completely sideways, and it didn't. And uh, it ended up being a fantastic week. We had great success. Everybody's happy, and we're now working on how do we get better for next year. And we've got a laundry list of changes. We had a meeting last week, about an hour. Uh, things I want to do with the engine control, things I don't want to do to the engine, uh, like change fucking anything. And... Uh, yeah, we're going to change some stuff on the car, suspension setup, whatever, aerodynamics. We have a little bit of a deficiency. Ran out of time last year. We're building the car uh, to build an airbox for the turbos. So uh, we're going to build a proper airbox because we're running at a little bit of a deficiency. When we rev the engine up all the way, the turbo is actually drawing a vacuum between the front of the turbo and, and atmosphere, which is bad. You know, basically makes the turbo think it's at a higher altitude than it really is. So we're going to build a proper airbox that fixes that. Um, do some stuff with suspension, a little bit of CFD work, possibly some aero changes, um, gearbox, if possible, potentially something with the diff. Uh, the differential is not a spool like a drag race car. It's not a solid or live rear axle. Um, it's It's got a certain percentage of lock that it has in its clutch pack. So it's somewhere in between a locked axle and an open diff. It's not open, but it's also not locked 100%. And that means that when you apply the power, it's going to want to spin one tire more than the other. But that also means that it turns corners easier because it unlocks the rear axle. We're going to experiment potentially with uh, a computer-controlled clutch in the axle where I can use the MoTeC using uh, GPS distance or whatever um, to determine when to, to make the clutch lock harder in the diff and give us more grip, which means we'd have more acceleration you know, at least in a straight direction. So we're going to potentially play with things like that. We're going to refine. Uh, we found most of the low-hanging fruit. We're not looking to change anything big. We just summited. Uh, no need for us to make any massive changes for next year. That's the idea. Now, 
Todd Gibson wants to know how I like how how I liked dropping the flag. That was an opportunity that I didn't see coming. When um, did you find out that you were going to be doing that? So when we got ready to go to the starting line race morning, you get four passes. Four people are allowed to go into the starting line area. Unless you're sneaky, yes. Right. And so Don gave me a pass. He gave Seth a pass, I think, uh, or maybe Tristan. Tristan for sure had one. Yep. So, um, no, Seth didn't have one. So maybe it was maybe it was it was me, Kevin. Ryan and, and Tristan, and, I think. No, 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 it wasn't Ryan. It was oh. it was me, Kevin, Tristan, and maybe Brandon. And when he came to Ryan, he said, Oh, sorry, you know, I only have four, but you have the radio. And I'm like, bullshit. Give Ryan, he has the radio. That's the guy that needs to be up there. If something goes wrong, he needs to not be standing 20 feet behind the car trying to figure out what it is. Yeah. I will be the one that doesn't go up there. And a couple minutes later, Don came to me and said, Hey, um, because it's the hundred anniversary, they're allowing crew members to be the honorary starters if they want to be, and they can wave the flag. And I asked my wife, Mary, but she said that she figured it might be too emotional, whatever, see her up there with the flag. And so she doesn't want to do it. So do you want to do it? <laughs> like, fuck, yes, yes. I, fucking absolutely. I want to do it. Yes. And so that gave me the opportunity also then to go with the car, you know, up to the starting line. And of course, you know, wave the flag. So I, I got to tell you, like, I, I, my heart was beating out of my chest. Now, last year when I went with the car to the starting line uh, and we planned to launch the car using launch control, when it came time to launch, they had changed the tires to a softer compound than what we had been testing with. So, of course, as you can imagine, on live television, he lets the clutch out, the motor dies. He starts it back up, revs it up, lets the clutch out, motor dies. Finally, I'm like, just fucking drive the... Drive the thing off like it's a grocery getter. I couldn't get away from the starting line fast enough last year. So this year, do you want to wave the flag? I'm like, okay. Again, I'm standing here. The cam TV camera is back there pointed at me. I'm like, don't fuck this up. It's not that hard. I just have to point at him, wave the flag, not drop it, not throw it, not do anything stupid. Make sure it's not all raveled up. That's the thing. So he hands me the flag and he's like, here, and I take it and I've got it in my hand. Now I've got the flag held down the flagpole. Like, so it's, you know, it's, it's not hanging out where you can wave it. It's under my fingers. I've got the pole, you know, the pole here in my thumb and the flag and I'm holding it like this. And I'm like, shit, I need to hold this a different way. Cause obviously I can't let go of the flag or I'll drop the whole freaking thing. So I'm fumbling around trying to figure out how many, which finger I'm going to use to hold the flag and the other fingers to make sure I hold it. I'm telling you, I couldn't have been any more nervous. I'm not sure that I've ever been any more nervous in my entire life. I was absolutely, my heart was going boom, boom, boom. And and then, you know, I waved the flag and he let the clutch out and it did a glorious burn. Beautiful. I mean, it was fantastic. I had, I chubbed up a little bit there for a minute. And I honestly think that one of my favorite photos, even though the TV guys were in my way, one of my favorite photos is with your back towards because I didn't know until last minute that you were going to do the flag thing. So I yeah. then had to get um, our other person who was working with us, um, her video crew. And I'm like, you guys need to just follow me straight up there. Don't let anybody stop you. We're just going to go. Right. Because we were not supposed to be where we sure. were. And the photo that I nabbed of you 
turned around with your arm in the air and you could see the car driving off. That was probably my favorite moment that I captured of the entire event because I had spent an entire week with you guys leading up to that. And the, you know, all of the, all of the shit and the lack of sleep and, you know, everything else, it legitimately led up to that moment and then the moment, and you weren't there for it, um, I think you were on the starting line, the moment that Ryan turned around in the trailer and said that Don had summited. Yes. And because what people don't realize on Don's team is, with the exception of like you and me and Ryan, Seth and Kevin, like these other guys are young. They're much younger than us. And to see the emotion that they had just from summiting. They're, I mean, they're young and they're Don's, you know, family and his friends and his, you know, I mean, they're as emotionally wrapped up in as it, as they could possibly be. We all get paid. So there's a, but there's still a connection, you know, there's still an emotional connection and you fucker, you managed to bring it out in me when you were, I don't even know what you were doing, but I know we were parked next to that barbecue and the smoke was going in my eyes. So that was, Oh yeah. That was really what did it. But yeah, I mean, look, I, there isn't, you can't, we can, we now spent nearly two hours talking about it. Not if we spent the entire two hours trying to describe how it was and you still want to get it, it wouldn't work. You better just come and see what it's like because you can't understand it will absolutely take your breath away. And correct me if I'm wrong, didn't Dan say that this year? So I think they normally sell like four or 5,000 tickets. Yeah. This year, over 7,000, yeah. I think. And he yes, said, it was like, the hundredth running, but. Oh, I think they, some of that had to do with COVID and no now question. we could finally have fans back again. Yes. It was amazing. It was stunning. I, it wasn't, of course, first of all, I haven't ever been up there for race day because we crashed before we could even have a chance. But last year when we went, of course, it was a COVID year. It was, you know, pretty mellow. Um, but Dan said something like they printed 4,500 tickets and had to print 1,500 more. And then they still sold more than that. Yep. So yeah, it was a shitload of people compared to what it normally is. And it, well, man, it was a ton of people going by the whole time we were in that car. And yeah, absolutely. Listen, the, the, the instant that you send the car off from the starting line and it disappears around that first corner, which is just underneath the start starting line, you know, flag or the starting line billboard, whatever they have. Up there, yep. You're done. I mean, it's, yeah. it's up to the driver at that point and, and the weather conditions and the car, you know, and you're obviously hoping that shit's not going to fall off, not going to overheat, not going to break. Did I screw anything up? Did I make a mistake? Is, you know, and you don't know until you get the report back either by the timing system or from the, 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 the video system that they have there, you know, whether your guy made it or not. And you don't know what kind of time you made it in or where you ended up until you see it come up on the, on the scoring system. So I had wandered around to the pit area because when Don ran, there was a problem with the, scoring system wasn't updating anyone's time so i was trying to find some other place to find it which was ridiculous because they're all hooked to the same scoring system that's not updating so all i did was walk around and look at a bigger version of a you know screen that wasn't updating but (laughs) yeah so i wasn't there when he actually summited and you know i decided to wander back to the trailer and that's when you guys told me so todd gibson wants to know if kelly moss fabricated the turbo system or setup and yes they absolutely did uh kelly moss did all of the fabrication and setup work on the car up till about three weeks before 
the race they were going to be going with us like they have in the past, but they weren't able to do it, which is why we had to get a new engineer and a new car chief quickly. But Kelly Moss did all the pre setup of the car and got it completely ready to go, nut and bolted it, whatever, to go up the mountain uh, before it left for race week. So, yes. Before we wrap this up, I want you to answer this one question. Pick one moment out of the seven days that we were there. What was your most memorable single moment of the entire event? Unquestionably sending him up that mountain before I waved the flag. I was looking at Don. We were, I didn't know what to do and I didn't want him to freak out. I was trying to make him calm. I was looking at his eyes. He was looking at mine. Um, we were kind of, I don't know, doing what people do when they look at each other for a long time, kind of, you know, doing this. And I was just trying to keep him focused. And, and there was a point where I reminded him the best way I knew how the, that this was for him, you know, this was his goal and he put all his money and effort into it and we all contributed to it. But at this point in time, we're handing it off to you. It's, it's in your hands and keep in mind that this is supposed to be fun. Uh, and so the best way I knew how to do that was simply to remind him to smile on his way up the mountain, because this next 10 minutes of his life is what he spent his entire lifetime waiting to achieve. And, and obviously sending him off with the flag was cool and I got chills when I did it and all that stuff. But that, those two minutes or however long it was, we waited until it was time for him to go. That was my most nervous and also my most, my favorite time of the whole, of the whole week. What do you have coming up next? Bonneville? Bonneville's next. We've been working on Speed Demon. The engines have been run on the dyno uh, to verify that the oiling systems work and all that stuff. The AA engine, which is the big block engine, has been in the car and has and has run. Uh, wait a minute. Yeah, the so the big block's been in. The A engine, uh, which is a 440-inch, 444-inch, whatever, LS engine, that's been in the car and it runs. The E engine, which is a 257-cubic-inch traditional uh, small block, was on the engine I know today. Uh, and running, you know, again, to verify that it's all good. It will go in the car either tomorrow or the next day, uh, make sure it runs, and then it'll come out and the A engine will go back in. Uh, we've been working on strategy and lots of stuff back and forth with other members of the team and me and Kenny Duttweiler and obviously Steve Watt, who runs the team, and, and my other wiring genius guy, Greg Piles G., who lives here in Long Beach and worked with me at Low Tech. He does all the wiring on that car. So him and I have gone back and forth. We're going to be going up there later this week uh, with the A engine in the car to go over all the sensors, all the electronic systems, make sure that they all work. It's a similar kind of thing to Pike's Peak. It's once a year. Um, there is more than one event actually at Bonneville, but there's really only one we ever go to. And the only one that everyone really pays attention to is Speed Week because it's the first one of the year. It's a week long, as you can imagine. Um, get a lot more sleep sometimes than you do, uh, at Pike's Peak. It's a different schedule, but, uh, no, no less work. And it, you know, it's the same kind of thing, man. It's you're up early in the morning. You go out on that salt, man, when the sun hasn't even come up over the mountains yet, 
and watch the sunrise on the salt. And it is a different place than uh, Pikes Peak is, but it's the same kind of feeling. You get some sort of feeling of connection with, you know, with the, with the universe uh, by being out there and seeing that stuff. And then of course, you know, hour later you're starting a race car and running the race car down the track and doing your race car thing. But it's a, uh, yeah, it's a unique venue. Pikes Peak and Bonneville remind me of each other, but, but Pikes Peak takes the cake uh, over Bonneville for being, you know, level of difficulty versus amount of time you get to fix stuff. You got one shot, man. It, yeah. Even at Bonneville, you have all week to qualify you only get one shot once you qualify. And if that doesn't work, you have to start over. But it's, you know, Pike's Peak is there ain't no do over. It's go and wait till next year if you don't like the result. Well, I'm going to have to have you on after Bonneville so you can explain how the Bonneville experience goes now that we've talked about Pike's. You know what? I could explain it all I want. And just like, you know, same thing, I'm, the same as Pike's. Uh, it's similar. I mean, you I gotta can go. explain it, but just, it's just not the same as going. For sure, every person that is interested in, you know, motor racing, even even slightly, owes it to themselves to one time in their life, go to Bonneville, go to Speed Week. Uh, it's the biggest event with the most cars. Go one time to Pikes Peak. You don't have to go every year, but go once to experience it. Go to Bonneville. Bonneville is not a great spectator sport for watching the racing because you're so far away from it. Uh, the cars are little. Obviously, it's cool to see, you know, the fast cars go 400 miles an hour or whatever. But for the most part, most of the cars, you see the, like five of them, you've kind of probably seen them all. But what you can't get any other place is the walking through the pits. Um, it, it's, it's like being... My dad tells me it's like being at, at the drag races in the 60s. You know, you, you have every possible combination of people's concepts of how to go fast. Some of them are scary looking. Some of them are really high tech and cool. But everybody's out there and they all get the same chance to play on the salt. And because it's not a professional sport, you're going to walk into someone's pit area. They're going to say, oh, sure. Chick, you know, take a look at the car here you know, take pictures with it, do whatever, answer any questions you have. Hey, do you want something to eat? I mean, it's just, it's just a nice environment to go to and, and everyone should go, you know, to Bonneville speed week, specifically speed week, uh, once in their life, just to see what it's like. You know, here's a great, here's a great example. This is probably a great way to end it. Last year I was on the starting line. We're going to run speed demon. Um, one of the other teams there, uh, Wayne Jessel, he has a pickup truck and he lets, lots of people drive the thing and get licenses and get their record, you know, get, uh, get their, their 200 mile an hour hat or 200 mile an hour club hat, uh, in his car. Uh, one of those people happened to be Jason line. Um, so Jason line is standing on the starting line. Um, I got the laptop out. We start talking about, you know, tuning the engine and how the turbo system works and whatever else. And he says something that was profound about Bonneville, which was that, the fun level there blows drag racing completely out of the water because you are not competing against uh, your competitor. You are competing against that salt, you know, and for in this case for a speed, not a time. Um, but it takes that uh, something that exists that that stops you from being 
completely uh, friendly, let's say, with yeah. with someone that's racing the same class as you because you're not racing head to head with them. So, and I think that's exactly the same thing that happens at Pikes Peak, and it's probably why I like going to Pikes Peak also. If anybody wants to find you, find out what you do, anything like that, how do they follow you, find you, find your work, etc.? All the normal processes of social media. So almost every social media outlet I am at, tuned by Shane T. I also have a personal Facebook page, Shane Tecklenburg. Um, and that's probably the best way. I obviously have a website, which no one's ever going to go to. Phone number, which if I gave it out, I wouldn't answer half the calls anyways. So that's the place. <laughs> Hugh Jass says I'm on Grinder. Oh, I don't even know what Grinder is, other than something you, you know, don't ask. Lose Just don't with, ask. But yeah. Well, uh, so you know what, Hugh Jass, Hugh Jass, I'll bet you Hugh Jass is Nathan Velotis out of Australia. Another wire does the same thing as Kevin. Okay. But he's just the kind of prick that would do that. <laughs> and if it's uh, not if it's not him, then that's fine because I've just got one in the bank for when he does some other stupid shit. Exactly. He's the one that posted a picture of me laying in a little kiddie pool, which to be fair, it's my fault. I put the picture out there so he could do it and put it on top of the James Webb Space Telescope you know, image. Posted that on Sunday, I think. Nice. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for now. I mean, we've... Uh... Have to have bored everybody to death by now. No, we've still got... Uh, I don't even know how many people on. So, um, And it's been very informational. I mean, I love it. I love sitting down and having these talks with you. So anytime that you want to be back on the show, absolutely. Because, I mean, we're going to see each other at least three or four more times this year anyways in person. So be careful what you wish for. That is true. I am actually going to go back to the drag strip this weekend. I was yeah. there. I was there last weekend, but it was actually a car audio show. It wasn't a drag race. Yeah. This weekend I'm going on Saturday helping my buddy because he runs Knoxville Dragway and he's got his series that they're running this Saturday. So I'm going up there. I haven't listen. I have not taken my camera out of the bag since I came back from Pikes. Dude, I'm telling you that week wasn't long enough after Pikes Peak, like no recharge, but I get it. Like it takes it out of you. And so yes, the next thing I'm going to do is Bonneville, I think. And then, I was going to say the next time I'll be at the drag strip is a Midwest Pro, uh, drag racing series, but I think I'll be at Indy with my uh, guy that runs my my customer Lee Hartman, who runs uh, Factory Stock Showdown. So yeah, I'll be in uh, I'll be in Maryland for Yellow Bullet that weekend. So I'll see you the following weekend in Michigan. Yep, Martin. Yep. All right. Well, stay in touch, and I thank everybody for tuning in. If you're on the audio version or the replay, I definitely appreciate it. Make sure to hit the subscribe button. If you like uh, what we talk about, we're going to do some more of this shit. And Shane, I appreciate the hours of time. I'm glad that everything went well. Uh, we do need to get you a ring light because, uh, yeah, I mean, you've got to show off that beautiful salmon colored dress shirt that you're wearing. I mean, I that, for you, man. that is, I think it almost matches the uh, silhouette that I've got on the front it, of the computer. It's closer to this more bright. It's more hot pink than that thing even is in reality, but the, yeah, it's all right. It's I, a, I it's think a that counts, isn't it? I think you're going to have to start wearing that more often. Uh, I think if I go to Pike's next year and you're going to be there, I think we should both wear the pink at least one day. 
preferably in tech where everybody can see us and talk to us too. So it'll, it'll be ridiculous. But again, I appreciate all the time and I will talk to everybody soon. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks. So we done. I got to take That's all I got for you. Thanks, guys.